Welcome, welcome. I'm Jen. Uh, so if you've been here, you will know that we have been in a series in which we have taken all the points in the New Testament where Jesus mentioned an Old Testament scripture, where he quoted the Old Testament, and we've been unpacking that passage by passage. Why did he quote that? Why did he pull from that? What did it mean originally? How did it apply in his context? Well, last, a couple of weeks ago, when Jason sent me my passage in chronology that we've been doing, he said, here's your passage, and I wonder if you can not teach this, this, this part, basically the context, and maybe just pick this one verse, because I have some stuff I really want to say about your passage the following week. And I was like, you know what? Why don't you just take it, the whole thing? I'm not going to teach scripture without its context. Uh, so you're going to hear whatever I was going to preach next Sunday when Jason preaches it. So what you're getting this morning is a one-off, okay? This is a one-off, and I was like, fine, I'll teach what I want. I'll just, this, I'm my own boss this morning. And so um, we are out of our series this morning, and I'm going to teach my absolute favorite passage in the entire Bible. And as I was studying it this week, I realized I've actually never taught it. I've only loved it. And so this has been a really great week to dig in um, to it as a teacher. So we're going to be talking about the prodigal son this morning, and it's in Luke 15, if you got your Bibles. Um, interesting about this story, Charles Dickens called it the greatest story ever told. And Robert Bridges, a famous poet, he called it a flawless piece of art. The story of the prodigal son has inspired paintings and dramas and musicals and ballets and people since its first telling. I think that it also sums up the entire message of the New Testament. I believe this story is the gospel in a nutshell, and I also think that it is a pretty good summary of the human response to grace and salvation. I think what we find are that the sons are the two characters that represent every generation forever. This is very, very applicable and always has been. I think once we truly understand this story, the father, the prodigal, and the older brother, we begin to grasp the main emphasis, really, of the entire New Testament. And I will forever be indebted to tender-hearted Luke because he is the only gospel writer that included this story. So I'm so grateful that he saw fit to put this into his recording. So we're in Luke 15. We've got to start with the context, unlike Jason advised me. Um, we've got to start with the context because it is the key to unlocking the meaning of this parable. So we cannot just barrel into this story and start dissecting its really important pieces without finding out why Jesus was telling this story in the first place. It matters. It matters to the way that we understand it. And so, side note, this is just, I like to sort of have conjecture about Jesus um, when he was walking on this earth. And this story is so magnificent it's so special. I just don't believe that he thought it up on the spot. My guess is that he was spinning this yarn for a while, that he had this story and he was working out the details and really thinking it through, and he stuck it in this hip pocket to bring out at the most opportune time when it would answer the question most directly. And I think that is what we see here. I suspect 
that Jesus saved this story for this exact moment. So it starts like this in Luke 15, chapter 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. All right? That's our jump off spot right there. That is where we find this story embedded. So keep in mind, this is the central question that Jesus' next three stories is going to answer. This is the point. This is the backdrop to what he is going to tell us. So it's important to note that at its very core, um, the story of the prodigal isn't chiefly about loose living or squandering gifts or disobedience, although those things definitely factor in. But primarily, this is a story about why Jesus loved sinners so much with no shame. Okay, that is what he has set out to answer. Why he refused to follow the laws of decency and associate with people of merit like everybody else was doing, right? Their entire law, of course, was predicated on behavior and rules. And so Jesus treating known sinners like old friends, it just constantly scrambled all their spiritual ideas about what pleases God. They just couldn't sort it out. They thought they had a handle on what pleased God and what he wanted from us, and Jesus was always turning that on its ear. So this is mainly a story about the heart of God and what he wants. Because um, frankly, his listeners, these, um, these Pharisees and teachers of the law, they're already experts in human behavior, right? Human behavior is their bread and butter. That's where they spend all their energy, policing human behavior. That was not lost on them but it was God's love for people that they didn't understand, right? So that is where Jesus is dialing it in. So to explain in some way God's love and grace for us, Jesus tells three kind of shocking stories, frankly, in ascending succession. He tells the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. So he starts out and goes, okay, guys, a shepherd had 100 sheep, one wandered off, and the shepherd left the 99 to go find the one, and what he did, he was pumped about it, and he was thrilled. Make sense? And they were like, that's the dumbest thing we ever heard. Like, that is so, no self-respecting shepherd would leave 99 sheep to go find the one dumb one that wandered off. Like, we're not buying this story. This makes no sense. We don't know. We don't get it. Okay, so he's, Jesus is like, all right, let's switch to something you value more, okay? So then he says, okay, there's a woman. She has 10 coins. She loses one, and she turns her house upside down and inside out all night long until she finds it. And when she found it, she threw a party. And they're like, we don't get it. Like, we don't, which, what, are you, what are you trying to say? Like, we don't understand what your point is. And so... One time my phone rang on the front row in the middle of my own sermon. That's nice. Yeah. Love that. So. <laughs> Get out of here. 
So after describing one sheep out of a hundred, then one coin out of ten, this is when Jesus brings out the big guns. This is when he brings out the story I suspect he has been saving. So in increasing value and in increasing loss, he now tells a story about one son out of two. Okay? So you can kind of see where he is going. And it starts in verse 15. Sorry, it starts in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So we're going to pause there before we move on because I do want, to, I want you to notice that Jesus includes an outrageous detail right out of the gate on this story because the Jewish laws on inheritance told us that when um, a man had two sons, upon his death, the older son would have received two-thirds of his entire estate and the younger son a third, the remaining one-third. So in a society here that both highly revered parents and the law, this younger son asks for one-third of all the father had while he was still alive, right? So in other words, like, I can't even wait until you die. I want you to write me a check right now for the third of your estate that you owe me, and I'm taking it and running. Right, so it's so audacious, and it's so greedy and disrespectful, and yet the father grants it. I want you to notice that. The father grants it. So before we even get into the heart of the story, Jesus is already explaining that this is a different kind of father right? One that apparently will favor his own children um, over laws, that will favor his own children over tradition, even over his own standing. And so the son's demand is actually not as shocking as the father's concession. So Jesus right here, right at the beginning, is signaling to the Pharisees who are listening, keep your eye on this father, right? Pay attention to the father. He's the one in this story I really want to show you. So as we read, the son loses everything, right? He wastes one-third of his father's entire estate, which, of course, would have been a combination of what his father left to him, plus everything he had ever earned, spent a lifetime building. You can only imagine the sort of suffocating shame that Jesus is sort of painting a picture of here, right? But I do want us to not make the mistake of limiting this story to just the ills of wild living. That is the example that Jesus reached for, and for good reason. But I think if that's all we took away from it, it would be too narrow. I believe the broader interpretation here, and one that I bet anyone there who had ears to hear, as Jesus was fond of saying, would have probably picked up on during Jesus' telling, is that 
this younger brother is just a human just like we are, right? Just this ordinary person who took everything he'd been given and ran away from dad, ran away from home, ran away from the father's house, his father's authority, his father's love, the sense of, I reject this, and I'll do what I want, and I think I know better, and I'm going to strike out on my own. And so I, I don't want us to refuse to identify with the younger brother because maybe we didn't spend our dad's inheritance while he was still alive, right? I think we obviously also leave the holy land to go voluntarily, mind you, into exile, a self-imposed exile, to places without God, right? To places where he is not present, where he is not welcome, where his ways and his word his kindness is unknown. And we like that because it gives us the idea that we perhaps can live without censure, right? But what so many of us who have done that have discovered is that we also must live without family over there and without community and without spiritual protection and without mercy because as it turns out, nobody loves us as much as our Father. Nobody. Nobody loves us that much. So moving away from God in this story, it doesn't have to involve geography like it does in the parable. We can frankly be sitting in this very room and feel as far away from him as we have ever been, right? And I think there are tons of reasons why we migrate away. Tons of reasons. Some good, some bad some sincere, some insincere. But Jesus goes on to tell us this in verse 15. Sorry, verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. I want to pause right there because I like that Jesus included this script um, that the younger son came up with, the script he was going to give his dad, because I'm guessing the Pharisees listening probably loved it. I think Jesus knew what he was doing here. They probably, as they're hearing the story unfold, really wanted this kid to be humiliated. I bet they really wanted this kid to come home and end up as a hired hand because, frankly, it's what he deserved, right? That ending would have made sense to them. That is how they understood God. Like, right, and then the lost son was in charge of the chickens the rest of his life, and the moral of the story is that God will take you back, but barely, right? That is the ending that they would tell. And I want to just say that if that ending makes sense to you too, I would suggest that you might have interpreted God entirely wrong. And I wonder if you would be open to considering that Jesus' description of his own father, 
Here is the right description. Would you consider that this is the true description? Can we believe that Jesus is telling us the real story of God here? Um, I was studying this week, and I came across this old sermon by this old preacher who was teaching this passage at the turn of the century. And I read through his sermon notes, and, and he, he told a version of this story that might make a little bit more sense to his listeners in his context, and I loved it so much. And, and this is what he said. He said, so just imagine that a son has left his father's home, like in our community, and he went and he blew it. He's out of money, he's out of friends, he's out of options, he's out of hope, he has nobody in his corner, he has no cards left to play, and all of a sudden it's like he wakes up one day and goes, what am I doing? What am I doing? I'm a, like, I'm a loved kid that has a family. So he writes his parents a letter, and he says, guys, I blew it and I don't deserve your forgiveness, and I've hurt you, and I've disappointed you, and I've wasted everything you gave me, but I have nowhere else to go, and I want to come home, but I know that I don't deserve it, and I know that there's no reason that you should welcome me back, but I have a ticket to a train to come home next Tuesday, and the train passes right by our house. And he said, if there's any way that you would still have me, would you hang that one yellow sheet that we have on the clothespin? And when we pass by on the train, if it's out there, I'll know that I can come home and I will get off at the next stop and come home. If it's not, I understand. Like, I understand that I don't deserve this. So he gets on this train and he's heading to home and he's starting to get antsy. He's worried. He's afraid. And he's starting to pace like up and down the train aisle. And he gets about a mile away and he can't stand it. He just can't. He's too afraid of not seeing that thing there. And so he talks to the man next to him and he says, listen, in about half a mile, right around this bend, we're going to pass a house. And I just need you to look out the window for me. And just tell me if you see a yellow sheet hanging on the clothespin. I just, I can't look. So the train takes the curve, and he turns his back to the window, and this man looks out the window on his behalf, and after a second he goes, you, you might want to just look at this. And he turns around, and there are yellow sheets everywhere, draping all the clothespins, draping the fence, draping the trees, draping the front door, draping the front porch, as many yellow sheets as he's ever seen in his life. This is how Jesus tells this part, starting in verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, he starts the script, 
I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He'd gotten two out of his three sentences out, and the father interrupts him. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. I mean, I will never get over this story as long as I live. We don't see anything we expect to see as the lost son or even that we want to see as the older son, right? Jesus goes so over the top here in this story fine robes and fancy rings and new sandals and the fatted calf and a feast and a party. And he leaves us no room, absolutely no room to ascribe shame or guilt or punishment or disappointment here. There is only outrageous joy and forgiveness and celebration. And listen to me, Jesus is telling us the real story of God right here. There is no other way to interpret it. No son or daughter of God will ever be demoted to a hired hand. Literally, no matter what. No matter what. Remember, this this story is not about human behavior. It is about the heart of God for his kids. And so at the end of this drama, full of rebellion and loss, the only thing the father has to say is, I missed you. Welcome home. It does not matter why we leave, how far we go, how terribly we behave, or how much we lose. God welcomes us home with robes and dancing and feasts because we may get lost, but we will always be his. So at this point in the story, I can kind of imagine that the Pharisees are not only like confused, but also like, can't relate, you know? I don't know, always on the right thing, so blah, blah. Um, (laughs) Right? So Jesus is like, one more little piece of the story that I want to tell you. And this is what he says in verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad 
because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The older brother obviously sees this difference in treatment as an injustice to him. And he is mad about it. He's even worried about his own security in the family because the father seems to be showing such favoritism to this younger, wild son. And I think that Jesus bookend this moment because the end of this conversation in this story kind of sounds a bit like the beginning of this whole thing when we read, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. There's the reflection in the story. Let's be honest. We love mercy for ourselves, but we hate it for our enemies. Do we not? When we have been a mess, just a hot disaster, it's pretty easy, actually, to identify with the younger brother, right? But honestly, it's not that hard to identify with the older brother either. It takes me about one second to think of people that I do not want God to show lavish, undeserved love for. I got a list. Because they've been wrong, right? I don't like their version of wrong. I don't like how wrong they've been. I'd like to see them demoted as the hired hands. I notice here something interesting about the father. Anne Lamott says, you know you've made God in your own image when he hates everyone you do. It's good. Um, I notice that the father treats the resentful older brother with the same surprising tenderness. He doesn't get what he deserves in this moment either. He says three very wonderful things that we should also take to heart. First of all, he says, you are always with me. In other words, your place in the family is secure. And then he says, everything I have is yours. In other words, your inheritance is not threatened by my generosity to another heir. And then I love his lessons, but we had to celebrate. And be glad because your brother was lost and is found. And the truth is, a homecoming of any brother or sister is cause for great joy, not jealousy. Thank goodness that the hero of this story is the father and not the wild younger brother nor the pious older brother, because you know what? We can actually be both of them on the same day. We can make choices that take us further and further away from God, drowning in our own shame while simultaneously resenting his love for people that we think are even more unworthy. It's the human dilemma. The children are not good heroes in the story of the family of God. The dad is the one to watch. So whether we have been far and full of shame 
or near and full of judgment. His message is consistent. I'm the dad. You're all my kids. Older child, there is no scarcity of love or mercy or affection in this house. It will never run out. And if you are the beloved youngest child, his message is this, I miss you. Come home. Just come home. The yellow sheets are out. 